Welcome to the African American Hour. I'm Byron Buckner, bringing you readings from the following publications. Texas Monthly Magazine, The Kansas City Beacon, AARP The Magazine, The Chicago Sun-Times Newspaper, The Associated Press, The New York Amsterdam News, and I'm going to get things started with the story from the Philadelphia Inquirer. The title is, Supreme Court Strikes Down Affirmative Action at Colleges. This was published June 30th, 2023, in the e-edition of the newspaper, and it was written by Susan Snyder. The subtitle is, The Longstanding Standard That Considers Race Was Overturned 6-3. The U.S. Supreme Court on Thursday ruled that colleges could not use race as a factor in deciding whether students should be admitted, likely one of the most consequential decisions affecting college admissions in the nation's history. The 6-3 ruling marks the second time in a year that the court's conservative majority has upended long-standing legal precedent. Last June, it took away a woman's federally guaranteed right to obtain an abortion. Colleges locally and nationally have long been bracing for the decision, fearing that if schools could no longer consider race as they historically have, that could reduce the number of black and Latino students at many of the nation's elite colleges and harm schools' efforts to create diverse classes. It's a pretty forceful opinion in how widespread it is the rejection of the use of race in admissions, said Michael Moreland, a Villanova University law professor who has watched the case closely. The decision in two cases, one involving Harvard and the other the University of North Carolina, overturns more than 40 years of admissions policy at many of the nation's campuses, though considering race is already barred in certain states, including California and Michigan. In those two states, some colleges have reported a decline in Black and Latino students as a result. Pennsylvania and New Jersey both have allowed race to be considered, but colleges here will now have to rethink their approach. Many universities have far too long wrongly concluded that the touchstone of an individual's identity is not challenges bested, skills built, or lessons learned, but the color of their skin, Chief Justice John Roberts Jr. wrote in the opinion. This nation's constitutional history does not tolerate that choice. Harvard's and UNC's admissions programs cannot be reconciled with the guarantees of the Equal Protection Clause, he wrote. Roberts also outlined a way that race still could come into play, particularly in the admissions essay portion of an application. Nothing prohibits universities from considering an applicant's discussion of how race affected the applicant's life so long as that discussion is concretely tied to a quality of character or unique ability that the particular applicant can contribute to the university. But several legal experts said that window is narrow and doesn't give colleges much to work with. It's a little bit more oblique in the way the court is allowing it, said John Jones III, a formal federal judge who is president of Dickinson College in Carlisle. Will that lead to as much diversity? That remains to be seen. Justices Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett joined Roberts in the opinion, while Sonia Sotomayor, Elena Kagan, and Ketanji Brown-Jackson dissented. There are two main graphics that go along with the story. One shows the pictures of the Supreme Court justices and how they voted, as I just read in the story. 
And the next section gives brief summaries of both the dissenting and majority opinions. And I'm going to read those next. Majority Opinion by Chief Justice Roberts. The Harvard and UNC admissions programs cannot be reconciled with the guarantees of the Equal Protection Clause. Both programs lack sufficiently focused and measurable objectives warranting the use of race, unavoidably employ race in a negative manner, involve racial stereotyping, and lack meaningful endpoints. We have never permitted admissions programs to work in that way, and we will not do so today. Next, they have a concurring opinion written by Justice Thomas. The solution to our nation's racial problems thus cannot come from policies grounded in affirmative action or some other conception of equity. Racialism simply cannot be undone by different or more racialism. Instead, the solution announced in the second founding is incorporated in our Constitution, that we are all equal and should be treated equally before the law without regard to our race. The next summary they present is the dissenting opinion by Justice Sotomayor. Today, this court stands in the way and rolls back decades of precedent and momentous progress. It holds that race can no longer be used in a limited way in college admissions to achieve such critical benefits. In so holding, the court cements a superficial rule of colorblindness as a constitutional principle in an endemically segregated society where race has always mattered and continues to matter. And the final summary of an opinion they present is the dissenting opinion by Justice Jackson. It reads, Our country has never been colorblind. Given the lengthy history of state-sponsored race-based preferences in America, to say that anyone is now victimized if a college considers whether that legacy of discrimination has unequally advantaged its applicants fails to acknowledge the well-documented intergenerational transmission of inequality that still plagues our citizenry. That was the first half of the story titled, Supreme Court Strikes Down Affirmative Action at Colleges. It was written by Susan Snyder and was published June 30th, 2023 in the e-edition of the Philadelphia Inquirer newspaper. My next story is from the Kansas City Beacon and its kcbeacon.org website. The title is, This Kansas City Organization Has a Prescription for More Black Doctors. It was written by Millie Mansaray, published March 20th, 2023. The subtitle is, Studies Show That Black Patients Have Safer Outcomes When Working with a Black Physician, But Black Doctors Make Up Less Than 6% of the Workforce. Mission Vision Project KC is looking to support underrepresented minority medical students and push for more doctors of color. Dr. Michael Weaver in 1977 was the first black student to fully complete the University of Missouri-Kansas City School of Medicine program that enables students to earn bachelor's degrees and medical degrees in six years. From there, Weaver embarked on a 40-year career at St. Luke's Health System, where he has held many roles, including Director of Emergency Services, Director of the Sexual Assault Center, and Medical Director of Equity, Diversion, and Inclusion. He also returned to his med school as a clinical professor of emergency medicine. Throughout his career, Weaver has often been asked to mentor black students from the medical schools in the area, the UMKC School of Medicine, the University of Kansas School of Medicine, Kansas City, and Kansas City University. He was happy to do so, and then inspiration struck. 
I said, what if I got all the underrepresented minorities at all three medical schools all together in one building at one time? Then what would that create, Weaver remembers? That was 17 years ago. He organized the first critical mass gathering of underrepresented minority students and physicians, naming it after the principle of physics that it takes a certain critical mass to sustain momentum or movement. It's really about creating a sense of community and creating a sense of belonging. And the students need to have that, Weaver said. And the doctors that already are practicing need to have that because we want doctors to stay in Kansas City. You're not going to stay somewhere that you don't feel comfortable. Weaver's critical mass gatherings are now part of something bigger. Two years ago with others, he founded Mission Vision Project KC, a nonprofit that works to recruit and support underrepresented minority students in the medical field and encourage them to remain in Kansas City's workforce. Across the nation, medicine is a predominantly white field. Despite representing 12% of the nation's population, only about 5.7% of physicians in the United States identify as Black or African American, according to the Association of American Medical Colleges. Mission Vision is looking to even out this disproportion. As a child growing up in Kansas City, it didn't occur to me that healthcare was a place where I could work and enjoy a career, said Jamila Weaver a nurse and former facilitator for diversity, equity, and inclusion training at St. Luke's Health System who volunteers with the Mission Vision Project. So what drives the work that we do now is helping young people to be able to see themselves in a career that's rewarding, fulfilling, and meaningful. While the annual critical mass gatherings have been a long-time tradition of Weavers, Mission Vision Project KC has taken on other roles. It provides financial assistance for students to take the preparation courses necessary for the costly U.S. medical licensing examination process. And it sends doctors and other medical professionals into area middle and high schools to spur student interest in medical careers. According to Weaver, one of the greatest assets for a medical student from an underrepresented group is guidance from someone who shares their lived experience. Once you open their eyes and help them see this opportunity, they need mentorship. They need to see people who can help them navigate the pathway to get into medical school, navigate the pathway to be successful in medical school, and navigate the pathway to graduate and go on to residency, he said. Kai Simmons, a graduate from the KU School of Medicine, shares similar sentiments. A native of the San Francisco area, Simmons is currently the only black medical school graduate in a residency program for head and neck surgery at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles. Black physicians represent just 1% of the physicians who practice head and neck surgery, he said. Simmons attended his first critical mass gathering in 2018, and as a black man at a school where black students made up 3% of the student body, it was a pivotal moment in his journey to be among doctors who looked like him. From the moment that I went to the event, I was immediately inspired by the purpose of the critical mass gathering, he said. Having the opportunity to have black and brown physicians from every medical specialty and being able to network with these folks and seeing people that look like you was something that's incredibly inspiring. One of the biggest roadblocks for underrepresented minorities in medicine is the financial burden. The average total cost of medical school is $230,296, according to Education Data Initiative. And that price tag has increased by almost $1,030 every year since 2015. Those of us that don't come from intergenerational wealth are having to figure these things out, while their classmates have resources that kind of pave the way, said Jamila Weaver, who is married to Michael Weaver. A challenge for Mission Vision Project KC is convincing young people to attend school and practice medicine in this region. 
One of the other things that we want to do is help raise full-ride scholarships for underrepresented minorities here in Kansas City, Michael Weaver said. Because what happens is that the big schools on the East and West Coast offer full-ride scholarships to our talented students. And they go there and they don't ever come back. Simmons, who plans to practice medicine in California, where he grew up, said young doctors of color want to work in a region with peers and mentors who also represent minority groups. I think a lot of people are interested in being where there are people that they can see themselves around, he said. Simmons added, if Kansas City could market themselves as a destination for people of color, I think they'll find more people of color. But that doesn't seem to be the narrative. Weaver and others in Mission Vision Project KC know that keeping doctors of color in Kansas City is crucial for patients. Unconscious bias against patients of color is prevalent in many aspects of medicine, including mental health. In the United States, black women are twice as likely as white women to experience life-threatening pregnancy-related complications, but these chances are cut in half if they're taken care of by a black doctor. Mission Vision Project KC is looking to expand its critical mass gathering model into other specialties such as dentistry, pharmacy, and nursing. Its founders are also planning to create more opportunities for networking outside of the annual gathering. Simmons, the KU Medical School graduate, has remained involved with the organization since his first critical mass gathering. He is trying to help expand the model into California. We don't have anything like the Mission Vision Project or the critical mass gathering in Los Angeles, he said. Cedar sinai has so much support that they can offer for projects like this. So I want to see if there's an opportunity for me to do similar things here that the Mission Vision Project has done in Kansas City. That was the article. This Kansas City organization has a prescription for more black doctors. It was written by Millie Mansouray, published March 20th, 2023, and it appeared at the kcbeacon.org website. My next story is from the Associated Press and its AP.com website. The title is An International African-American Museum Opening, A Reclaiming of Sacred Ground for Enslaved Kin. It was written by Aaron Morrison and was published June 27, 2023. When the International African-American Museum opens to the public Tuesday, June 27th in South Carolina, it becomes a new site of homecoming and pilgrimage for descendants of enslaved Africans whose arrival in the Western Hemisphere begins at the docks of the Low Country Coast. Overlooking the old wharf in Charleston at which nearly half of the enslaved population first entered North America, the 150,000-square-foot museum houses exhibits and artifacts exploring how African-Americans' labor, perseverance, resistance, and culture shaped the Carolinas, the nation, and the world. It also includes a genealogy research center to help families trace their ancestors' journey from point of arrival on the land. The opening happens at a time when the very idea of black people's survival through slavery, racial apartheid, and economic oppression being quintessential to the American story is being challenged throughout the U.S. Leaders of the museum said its existence is not a rebuttal to current attempts to suppress history, but rather an invitation to dialogue and discovery. Show me a courageous place. Show me an open space. Show me a space that meets me where I am. And then gets me where I asked to go, said Dr. Tanya Matthews, the museum's president and CEO. I think it's the superpower of museums, she said. The only thing you need to bring to this museum is your curiosity, and we'll do the rest. 
The $120 million facility features nine galleries that contain nearly a dozen interactive exhibits of more than 150 historical objects and 30 works of art. One of the museum's exhibits will rotate two to three times a year. Upon entering the space, eight large video screens play a looped trailer of a diasporic journey that spans centuries, from cultural roots on the African continent, the horrors of the Middle Passage to the regional and international legacies that spawned out of Africans' dispersal and migration across lands. The screens are angled as if to beckon visitors towards large windows and a balcony at the rear of the museum, revealing sprawling views of the Charleston Harbor. One unique feature of the museum is its gallery dedicated to the history and culture of the Gullah Geechee people. Their isolation on rice, indigo, and cotton plantations on coastal South Carolina, Georgia, and North Florida helped them maintain ties to West African cultural traditions in Creole language. A multimedia chapel-sized praise house in the gallery highlights the faith expressions of the Gullah Geechee and shows how these expressions are imprinted on Black American gospel music. On Saturday, the museum grounds buzzed with excitement as its founders, staff, elected officials, and other invited guests dedicated the grounds in spectacular fashion. The program was emceed by award-winning actress and director Felicia Rashad and included stirring appearances by poet Nikki Finney and the McIntosh County Shouters, who performed songs passed down by enslaved African Americans. Truth sets us free, free to understand, free to respect and free to appreciate the full spectrum of our shared history, said former Charleston Mayor Joseph Riley Jr., who is widely credited for the idea to bring the museum to the city. Planning for the International African American Museum dates back to 2000 when Riley called for its creation in a State of the City address. It took many more years through setbacks in fundraising and changes in museum leadership before construction started in 2019. Originally set to open in 2020, the museum was further delayed by the coronavirus pandemic, as well as by issues in the supply chain of materials needed to complete construction. Gadsden's Wharf, a 2.3-acre waterfront plot where it's estimated that up to 45% of enslaved Africans brought to the United States in the late 18th and 19th centuries walked, sets the tone for how the museum is experienced. The wharf was built by Revolutionary War figure Christopher Gadsden. The land is now part of an intentionally designed ancestral garden. Black granite walls are erected on the spot of a former storage house, a space where hunched enslaved humans perished awaiting their transport to the slave market. The walls are emblazoned with lines of Maya Angelou's poem, And Still I Rise. The museum's main structure does not touch the hallowed grounds on which it is located. Instead, it is hoisted above the wharf by 18 cylindrical columns, Beneath the structure is a shallow fountain tribute to the men, women, and children whose bodies were inhumanely shackled together in the bellies of ships in the transatlantic slave trade. To discourage visitors from walking on the raised outlines of the shackled bodies, a walkway was created through the center of the wharf tribute. There's something incredibly significant about reclaiming a space that was once the landing point, the beginning of a horrific American journey for captured Africans, said Malika Pryor, the museum's chief learning and education officer. Walter Hood, founder and creative director of Hood Design Studios based in Oakland, California, designed the landscape of the museum's grounds. The designs are inspired by tours of Lowcountry and its former plantations, he said. 
The lush grounds, winding paths, and seating areas are meant to be an ethnobotanical garden, forcing visitors to see how the botany of enslaved Africans and their descendants helped shape what still exists today across the Carolinas. The opening of the Charleston Museum adds to a growing array of institutions dedicated to teaching an accurate history of the Black experience in America. Many will have heard of and perhaps visited the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture in the nation's capital, which opened in 2016. Lesser-known Afrocentric museums and exhibits exist in nearly every region of the country. In Montgomery, Alabama, the Legacy Museum, from enslavement to mass incarceration and the corresponding National Memorial for Peace and Justice highlights slavery, Jim Crow, and the history of lynching in America. Pryor, formerly the educational director of the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History in Detroit, said these types of museums focus on the under-discussed, under-engaged parts of the American story. This is such an incredibly expansive history. There's room for 25 more museums that would have opportunities to bring a new curatorial lens to this conversation, she said. The museum has launched an initiative to develop relationships with school districts, especially in places where laws limit how public school teachers discuss race and racism in the classroom. That was the article, An International African American Museum Opening, A Reclaiming of Sacred Ground for Enslaved Kin. It was written by Aaron Morrison and appeared June 27, 2023 at the Associated Press's AP.com website. My next reading is from an e-edition of the Chicago Sun-Times newspaper. This is an obituary from the Wednesday, June 7, 2023 edition of the newspaper. The title is Isaac Red Holt, 1932-2023. Chicago jazz legend was a member of the original Ramsey Lewis Trio and Young Holt Unlimited. It was written by Mitch Dudek capital D-U-D-E-K. Chances are you've tapped your foot, clapped your hands, bopped your head, or just gotten out of your seat to dance to the music Chicago jazz legend Isaac Red Hope created as the drummer in a number of groups, including the Chicago-born Ramsey Lewis Trio. Their live album, The In Crowd, recorded in the Bohemian Caverns nightclub in Washington, D.C., topped the Billboard R&B chart and reached the penultimate position on the Top 200 Albums chart in 1965. It also won a Grammy, and its title track cracked the Top 5 Singles chart. His bandmates, Lewis on piano and L.D. Young on bass, were teenage pals from growing up on the West Side. They were so revolutionary, they broke out and went mainstream. They went global and turned it basically into pop music, said Mike Jeffers, founder of Chicago Jazz Magazine. Mr. Holt was known as the master of time because his time was just impeccable, Jeffers said. You keep time as the drummer, and Red never varied or rushed or dragged. His time was always in the pocket of improvisational jazz, and that meant it felt good, and as a listener, you're feeling it and grooving and dancing. That means that drummer is right in the pocket. Friends said Mr. Holt was known to answer the phone by simply saying, this is the master of time. The group was originally known as Ramsey Lewis and the Gentlemen of Swing. But trios were trending, so they changed their name. Mr. Holt spruced up his name, too, from Red, R-E-D, to Red, R-E-D-D 
To catch some of the mojo associated with the comedian Red Fox, who gigged alongside the trio for a time, said Mr. Holt's son, Reggie Holt. Mr. Holt got the nickname because when he played in certain sunlight as a child, his hair and light-toned skin took on a reddish color, his family said. Financial and creative differences split the trio in 1966, and Mr. Holt and Young went on to form the Young Holt Trio, which eventually molded into Young Holt Unlimited, a band that featured a wider cast of musicians until the group broke up in 1974. He followed it up with Red Holt Unlimited. Mr. Holt's post-Ramsey Lewis trio groups blended jazz, blues, and gospel into funky beats that included hits like Soulful Strut, Wah-Wah Man, and Whack Whack, and other tunes that were sampled by a range of hip-hop artists including De La Soul and Kendrick Lamar, according to bassist and pal Ken Habich. Mr. Holt's childhood sweetheart and wife, Mary Lean, was often at home in Chatham with their three sons as Mr. Holt hit the road to tour, but his brood regularly traveled with the band in the summer. He was a superb dad, and when I saw him breaking out his suitcase, I would become sad. I tried to get in his suitcase a couple of times so he would take me with him, Reggie Holt said. Mr. Holt died May 23rd from complications associated with lung cancer. He was 91. He rode that roller coaster of being in the entertainment field, and I watched him rise up from ashes maybe four different times, Reggie Holt said. There were lean years and lots of odd jobs. He was never too prideful between gigs. Mr. Holt once picked up extra cash by working with Meals on Wheels to deliver food to the elderly. It was maybe not the best fit. Lots of hungry clients recognized him and wanted to chat, keeping him from moving on to his next delivery, family said. The original Ramsey Lewis trio reunited for a tour and album in the 1980s, and Mr. Holt and Lewis let any hard feelings go because they considered each other family. Dad was like his big brother. He had to promise Ramsey's mother that he would always get Ramsey back home safe and keep him away from drugs when he'd pick him up for rehearsal as teenagers, Reggie Holt said. Mr. Holt attended Crane High School and formed a band called the West Side Clefts before being drafted into the military during the Korean War. He served in a tank unit and played in a military band while stationed in Germany. He never took part in combat, Reggie Holt said. His professional career took off when he got out of the military after serving for two years. Mr. Holt spent much of the 1990s playing with various musicians, including Young, during weeks-long stretches, gigging in Asia and places like Singapore and Jakarta. Starting around 2000, Mr. Holt began a two-decade run playing weekly shows at the East Bank Club, an arrangement that ended with the pandemic lockdown in 2020. Mr. Holt, who moved to Chicago from Mississippi when he was eight, also played at dozens of Chicago public school gymnasiums and auditoriums during the Irving Gateways program, which sought to get children engaged in the arts. We played swing and bebop and kids would just be going crazy, said Habich, who gigged with Mr. Holt for years through the program and at the East Bank Club. During the pandemic, Mr. Holt played in the backyard of the Arlington Heights home of Tim O'Neill, who invited hundreds of his neighbors and turned the space into a mini Ravinia. According to O'Neill, a higher power and the white pages brought them together. As a kid, O'Neill became obsessed with listening to his parents' vinyl album of the in crowd. As an adult on a whim, he looked up Mr. Holt to the phone book and left him a message asking him to sign the album. Mr. Holt called him back and agreed. It was the beginning of a close friendship. 
It took him a while to open up to me because I think he was a little suspicious of the little white dude with red hair coming from Arlington Heights, said O'Neill, a heating and air conditioning expert who helped Mr. Hope fix up his home in exchange for signing a pair of drumsticks. O'Neill, 63, recorded a performance by Mr. Holt in 2019 at Jazz Showcase, a jazz club downtown, and turned it into an album titled, Where is the Cats, Man? The title is based off a question he once asked Mr. Holt. When you die and are in front of God, what are you going to say? He responded, Where's the Cats, Man? As in, Where's all my buddies, O'Neill said. In addition to his wife, Mary Lean, and his son, Reggie, Mr. Holt is survived by his sons, Monty and Ivan, as well as eight grandchildren and ten great-grandchildren. There are some photographs that go along with the story. The first shows Mr. Holt behind a red drum set. Next to him is a bassist who's wearing red pants and a cream-colored shirt. Mr. Holt has an afro, has long sideburns, and is smiling as he's tapping on the cymbals. There's another black and white photograph showing Mr. Holt along with other members of the original Ramsey Lewis trio. That's L.D. Young and Ramsey Lewis. And finally, there is a photograph of Mr. Holt standing with his three sons in front of a building. That was the article, Isaac Red Holt, 1932 to 2023. Chicago jazz legend was a member of original Ramsey Lewis Trio and Young Holt Unlimited. It was written by Mitch Dudek, and it was published in the Chicago Sun-Times newspaper on Wednesday, June 7, 2023. My next reading is from Texas Monthly Magazine and its TexasMonthly.com website. The title is, The Story We've Been Told About Juneteenth is Wrong. It was written by Peniel Joseph, and it appeared in the magazine's June 2023 edition. The subtitle to the story is, The Real History is Much Messier and More Inspiring. My first memories of Juneteenth began in church. I grew up in a predominantly black section of Jamaica in the New York City borough of Queens. Our small congregation at New Bethel Baptist Church consisted of Caribbean immigrants such as my Haitian-born mother, native-born New Yorkers such as me, and migrants from across the South, including Texas. As new parishioners arrived, they transplanted their food, culture, and folkways into our church rituals and traditions. My mother prided herself in the excellence of her Haitian cooking, especially dishes such as soup jamu, stewed chicken accompanied by rice and beans, black or red, and sweet coconut dessert she occasionally prepared for other congregants. But we also relished those special occasions at church when the cozy upstairs room that doubled as a kind of banquet hall was filled with the rich aroma of southern soul food, cornbread, fried fish, red velvet cake. This was the early 80s in my elementary school years. One Sunday morning as I sat on a light brown pew in New Bethel Sanctuary, I was wrapped as parishioners from Texas took to the pulpit and told a fascinating story of enslaved Africans who didn't hear news of their liberation until Union General Gordon Granger issued an order in Galveston on June 19, 1865, more than two months after Confederate General Robert E. Lee's surrender at Appomattox Courthouse in Virginia. 
I was reminded of my mother's stories about the Haitian Revolution in which slaves overthrew French rule and, to much of the world's surprise, achieved independence in 1804. That uprising inspired emancipation movements around the globe, though it would be another six decades before freedom for the enslaved reached America's shores. After the service, I overheard fervent conversations about slavery and the need to teach young people like me to never forget. I didn't know it at the time, but my experience of hearing about Juneteenth was similar to that of untold others across the United States. Juneteenth had been observed in Texas since 1866, and celebrations soon spread to neighboring states. As black Southerners fled north and west throughout the 20th century, in what became known as the Great Migration, festivities cropped up across the country. My family didn't mark Juneteenth at home, but our Texas parishioners never allowed us to take for granted its special meaning. Each year we would commemorate the day, often during a Sunday service and occasionally during vacation Bible school. Only later would I learn that the stories of Juneteenth that I'd heard in church were part of a far more complicated tale. I vividly recall watching The Roots television miniseries, which offered a groundbreaking examination of slavery in American popular culture. Juneteenth introduced a new layer to the story. I imagine myself as part of the black Texas community, which dared to believe in dreams of freedom that were once considered impossible. As I grew older, my interest in history expanded. The more I found out, the deeper I yearned to go. Slowly, I came to realize that history was not just about the past. The stories it tells help us make sense of the here and now and might shape the future. I eventually became a professor, my teaching and research interests firmly planted in the 20th century civil rights and black power movements. In 2015, I accepted a position at the University of Texas at Austin, and once I arrived, my understanding of Juneteenth became more intimate. I witnessed local celebrations in Austin in which black Texans acknowledged the day's importance, but also wrestled with its contradictions, knowing that real freedom had not in fact been achieved that day in Galveston. It was still a work in progress. While Texans celebrated Juneteenth with particular zeal, many Americans still did not have the faintest clue about its origins, historical import, or contemporary resonance. That was until an improbable series of events transformed Juneteenth into a national symbol. George Floyd's public execution by former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin on May 25, 2020, sparked months of demonstrations that swelled into one of the largest social justice movements in American history and elicited an unprecedented collective outpouring of racial grief. Against this backdrop, I was one of many who began to examine Juneteenth anew. I published a CNN opinion article headlined, Make Juneteenth a National Holiday Now, arguing in part that Juneteenth offers America a new origin story. Black people are largely absent from our national narratives. Juneteenth, I suggested, offered an opportunity to correct that. In some ways, Juneteenth can be read as a response to Frederick Douglass's searing 1852 speech in Rochester, New York, known as What to the Slave is the Fourth of July? Douglass, a formerly enslaved black man from Maryland who became arguably the most important activist of the 19th century, assailed celebrations of freedom in a land scarred by slavery. This 4th of July is yours, not mine, he said to the audience. You may rejoice. I must mourn. On June 17, 2021, roughly a year after Floyd's killing, 
Juneteenth became an official U.S. holiday signed into law by President Joe Biden. It was the first new federal holiday since Martin Luther King Jr. Day was enshrined in 1983 in a signal achievement in American history, drawing the country one step closer to publicly acknowledging its original sin of slavery. Yet the real history of Juneteenth remains largely unknown. The myriad ways in which black freedom was persistently sabotaged, beginning with Granger's original order and continuing through today, at a moment when our national narrative is hotly contested. The teaching of history is under attack, which lends more urgency to an earnest reckoning with the meaning of Juneteenth. What are we celebrating when we observe it, and should we be celebrating it at all? Is it actually an indictment of America? A repudiation of the 4th of July? Is it a day worthy of veneration, of shame, or of both? When General Granger first sailed into Galveston in June 1865, he was accompanied by roughly 2,000 troops. At the time, Galveston was the most populous city in Texas, with a bustling and lucrative port managed partly by black workers who transported goods and gossip from around the world. Granger and his staff commandeered a villa in town and set up the impossible mission of bringing a semblance of order and security to the largest succession state of the newly restored Union. The mood was dark, with cities and rural hamlets still reeling from the physical and economic devastation wrought by the war. About a month earlier, the Confederate Army had won a battle at Palmetto Ranch outside Brownsville. That clash, the last major action of the Civil War, had been waged more than a month after Lee's surrender in Virginia. Without the forceful appearance of Union soldiers, black Texans had remained imprisoned within the convulsive clutches of a dying Confederacy. The stories of how General Order No. 3 was relayed to Galvestonians vary, but Granger likely read the order aloud in a public meeting designed to spread the message to as many people as possible. The words, all slaves are free, served as a declaration of independence for some and a provocation to others. Granger and his troops often encountered a violent, anxious, fearful, and vengeful white population, including Confederate soldiers and sympathizers who engaged in reckless acts and looting in parts of Texas. Granger's order was based loosely on Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. The 13th Amendment, which made slavery unconstitutional, wasn't ratified until December 6, 1865. The order first declared that the formerly enslaved were free based on absolute equality of personal rights and rights of property between black people and those who had presumed legal ownership of them. This is the happy news upon which most Juneteenth celebrations are based. It's also an oversimplified tale of what happened that day. A common view about Juneteenth in both black and white communities is that black folks in Galveston and around Texas were slow to hear or fully grasp the news about the Civil War end and the arrival of liberty. This is the story I was told in church, but that's not entirely true. Some portion of black Texans, especially those working in the port of Galveston, knew that the tide of the war had long ago turned in favor of Union troops. They'd also probably caught wind of the Emancipation Proclamation from travelers disembarking from the wharves. Further, they'd likely heard what must have seemed to be fantastical tales of regiments of black soldiers in the Union Army. News of impending freedom had almost certainly reached other parts of Texas when enslaved African Americans from the Deep South were transported to the Lone Star Estate during the war. Texas was a haven for white slave owners fleeing Louisiana and other areas of the Confederacy being conquered by Union troops. 
but the news held little practical meeting so long as the state remained under Confederate control. The arrival of some 2,000 federal troops appeared to mark an end to white rule over black Texans. But Granger's order limited and undermined the very freedom that it promised. The relationship between former masters and the enslaved would now evolve into a vague contract between employers and hired labor. The freedmen were advised to remain quietly at their present homes and work for wages, read the order. But how could black Texans enjoy freedom while remaining on plantations? Would they be allowed to leave, travel, or reunite with loved ones? Were they forbidden from becoming entrepreneurs and landowners? Further, black men and women were warned not to flock to military posts. Since 1863, when black men were allowed to enlist in the Union Army, its military posts became beacons for freedom. The sight of blue uniforms liberating secessionist territories often meant the promise of food, clothing, and reading materials. Granger's warning that black Texans will not be supported in idleness on military posts or elsewhere was an admonishment suggesting that they could not rely on federal troops, whether those Texans were seeking protection, searching for news about family and friends, looking for work, or in need of food. The troops were there to enforce liberation, but they would not necessarily support those trying to carve out a new life. This is why, even after Granger arrived, many black folks responded to the news of freedom cautiously, fearing reprisals. Yet as word spread, some did walk away from plantations. Others rejoiced, exalted, and stayed put while planning their next moves. Fears among black Texans were borne out. In the ensuing months, the beginning of the period that would become known as Reconstruction, racial violence spread. In one town, white Texans whipped dozens of formerly enslaved people who celebrated the news of emancipation too enthusiastically. White attacks against free black people ranged from verbal harassment and intimidation to physical assaults and even murder. Black Texans in Galveston and other parts of the state navigated a new landscape at times more dangerous and volatile than the one they'd left behind. The backlash of many white residents against the idea of black citizenship and dignity would become a normal feature of Texas political landscape, a legacy that persists today. Just as limitations on black freedom were baked into Granger's emancipation announcement, Racial discrimination became embedded in public policies that propagated unequal housing and employment opportunities, wealth gaps, educational and residential segregation, police brutality, and political disenfranchisement. Black coats in Texas and throughout the South prevented African Americans from voting, securing fair labor contracts, attending racially integrated public schools, or owning land. For many years after Granger's arrival in Galveston, freedom could not be publicly enjoyed in some parts of Texas, even on Juneteenth itself. On a chilly day this past fall, I arrived in Houston's Emancipation Park and joined Erica Thompson, an archivist and historian who serves as community liaison at the African-American Library at the Gregory School, which once housed the first black school in the city. Thompson had agreed to show me around the park, which sits just south of downtown in Third Ward, long as center of the city's black community. Established in 1872, the park was among the oldest in Texas, created by formerly enslaved locals who wanted a place to commemorate Juneteenth. Though the inaugural celebrations were relatively small, today they are citywide affairs that feature appearances and speeches by elected officials, religious and civic leaders, and a who's who of black Houston. 
As Thompson and I walked the ground, she pointed to the abstract mosaic sculptures that honor four of the community leaders who raised money to purchase the 10 acres of land. The Reverend David Elias Dibble, Richard Allen, Richard Brock, and John Henry Yates. Located at the four corners of the park, the sculptures are the work of the local artist Reginald Adams. The park, Thompson explained, serves as a living memorial to generations gone by. It's also a repository of a story that is just beginning to receive its due. The founders of Emancipation Park were all born into bondage. As pastors, tradesmen, political leaders, husbands, and fathers, they helped make Houston a wellspring of black social, political, economic, and religious life in Texas. After emancipation, Richard Allen quickly became one of Houston's most important political leaders. A talented carpenter and architect, he served as an agent of the Freedmen's Bureau, as a voter's registration supervisor, and as an elected state representative. Allen designed Antioch Missionary Baptist Church, which was led by Jack Yates, who had become a minister and activist in the late 1860s. Yates also played a leading role in the founding of the Houston Baptist Academy, a precursor to Texas Southern University. A third sculpture in the park honors Richard Brock, who established a successful career as a blacksmith in Houston at a time when barriers to African-Americans' entrepreneurship were almost impossibly high. He later helped found the St. Paul African Methodist Episcopal Church. Lastly, David Elias Dibble was a self-taught preacher and founder of a Freedmen's Methodist congregation, now called Trinity United Methodist Church. Dibble collaborated with the Freedmen's Bureau, which helped create a school within his church and served as a trustee for the Gregory School. These four men and their contemporaries provided an incubator for educational advancement, cultivated tight-knit religious communities, and built a thriving political movement that propelled a number of formerly enslaved black Texans into positions of power that made them prominent figures within the racially integrated Republican Party. After exploring the park grounds, I went inside the cultural center and gazed upon gorgeous photographs of 19th and early 20th century black Houstonians. One image depicts a well-to-do family outside a tidy home. Another shows a group of some 30 women and men during a Juneteenth celebration in the late 1800s. They look both prosperous and circumspect, with some older men doffing their hats and younger women wearing white exhibiting a kind of grace that racist stereotypes of the era insisted that black people could never possess. Studying these photos, I was struck by how much black Texans were able to achieve in the years immediately after the abolition of slavery. Their efforts paved the way for others. Fort Bend County, just southwest of Houston, became such a significant base of black political activism that unsympathetic white Texans characterized it as part of the Senegambian district, a mocking reference to a region of West Africa. Black residents served as district clerks, constables, justices of the peace, and county treasurers. The creation of Emancipation Park represented a belief in the power and promise of a new Texas, one in which black citizenship and dignity could be celebrated, even as full equality was still just a dream. That was the article, The Story We've Been Told About Juneteenth is Wrong. The real history is much messier and more inspiring. It was written by Peniel Joseph, and it appeared in the June 2023 edition of Texas Monthly Magazine and its texasmonthly.com website. My next article is titled, 
50 Years of Hip Hop. It was written by Nelson George, and I found this story in AARP, the magazine, in its June-slash-July 2023 edition. The subtitle to this story is, What emerged from a simple party in 1973 has evolved into a global cultural movement. It all started on August 11, 1973. An 18-year-old Clive Campbell and his young sister Cindy hosted a dance party billed as a back-to-school jam in the rec room of an apartment complex at 1520 Sedgwick Avenue in the Bronx, New York. These details are now the stuff of legend. Clive, who spun records under the moniker DJ Cool Herc, had previously noticed that dancers responded to the instrumental breaks in songs, especially those heavy with bass and drums. So he set up two turntables and artfully switched between them to isolate and extend the break beats, never losing the rhythm. Hip-hop was born. Many say it would be a fad, like so many pop cultural trends before and after. But in the 50 years since that fateful event, hip-hop has entrenched itself in our society. I became aware of hip-hop as a college student in late 70s New York. It was the antithesis of disco glamour. You could wear sneakers and baseball caps and be part of the party. A number of kid-friendly practices, rhyming over a beat, DJing, breakdancing on cardboard, spray-painting graffiti on walls, coalesced into a coherent culture. As a writer, I watched and documented hip-hop as it grew from a small scene to one with national and international appeal. A part of hip-hop's success is that it's adaptable. So the music, rhyme style, dances, and clothes evolved while remaining true to the culture. Much of modern hip-hop sounds nothing like the old-school beats I heard back in the day. But by remaining a potent medium of youthful expression, hip-hop has stayed contemporary. Over the decades, detractors have come after hip-hop. Record industry professionals, African-American church groups, women's groups, politicians of both major parties. Yes, at times, much hip-hop has been raw, rude, and viewed as a niche expression. But the attacks reaffirmed the value to its fans. While critics disdained its language, there was an unrestrained honesty that spoke to younger people. And hip-hop was an underdog, fighting for respect from the makers of rock, jazz, and country. But as the genre became more popular than any other, it eventually influenced all those styles that came before it. You can even hear rapping and trap beats in some country songs today. Just as significant, hip-hop sells movies, TV series, clothing, alcohol, sneakers, perfume, hair products, and brands of every description, and has made billionaires of its sharper entrepreneurs. Jay-Z, Rihanna, and Sean Diddy Combs are among the richest musicians in the world. From business ventures encompassing more than just songcraft. It isn't only America. Travel to South Korea, Brazil, Poland, or South Africa, practically anywhere, and hip-hop scenes proliferate. And it all started at a small party in the Bronx. That was an opinion piece written by Nelson George titled 50 Years of Hip-Hop. It appeared in the June-slash-July 2023 edition of AARP The Magazine. Next, I have an op-ed piece from columnist Armstrong Williams. The title is, Let Us Not Forget, It Is 2023, Not 1963. This appeared in the New York Amsterdam News and its AmsterdamNews.com website. It was published May 23, 2023. 
Nestled within the nation's capital, the historic Howard University stands, its hallowed halls echoing with the pulsating hopes and dreams of a generation eager to carve out their niche in the world. This illustrious institution, a historically black university, has always been a beacon, a lighthouse guiding ambitious, capable minds to the shores of success. In its classrooms, future engineers, doctors, entrepreneurs, and industry titans are forged, eager to script their unique narratives in the annals of American history. When President Biden took to the podium at Howard's 2023 commencement, one would have reasonably expected him to inspire, to offer words soaked in wisdom and insight, to breathe life into visions of a future shimmering with promise. But the president chose a different path, deciding to dwell on race, a significant yet singular aspect of our shared experience as a nation. There is no denying that race forms an integral part of our national tapestry, but it is not the whole picture. The young men and women at Howard are not just black students. They are first and foremost individuals, each with a distinct set of aspirations, a unique set of challenges to overcome, and a personal catalog of triumphs. They are America's next generation of leaders, a diverse cohort whose interests and concerns span far beyond the confines of race. As such, their graduation ceremony shouldn't be about race. It should not be marred by the President of the United States declaring white supremacy as the most dangerous terrorist threat to the nation. Remarks that categorize individuals as threats based on their race, ethnicity, or beliefs are not suitable for a graduation event, a time meant for rejoicing in accomplishments rather than delving into divisive topics. By placing such an unwavering focus on race, we risk minimizing these young people to a single facet of their identity. We subtly imply that their most pressing concern should be the color of their skin rather than the weight of their thoughts, the grandeur of their dreams, and the potential impact of their actions. We seem to forget the variety of subjects that could and should be addressed. Economic policy, global diplomacy, technological advancements, climate change. These are the challenges and opportunities of their era, the real concerns that need addressing. Let us not forget, it is 2023, not 1963. The world around us continues to transform and our conversations need to reflect this evolution. We must acknowledge the complexity and diversity of thought that exists within the African-American community and not confine them within the walls of an oversimplified narrative that fixates on their race. As we step into the future, our demands from our leaders must grow. We must demand an acknowledgement and appreciation of the full range of our experiences, the richness of our dreams, and the diversity of our identities. We must strive for a discourse that values us not just for the color of our skin, but for the quality of our ideas, the depth of our character, and the breadth of our potential. The horizon is just opening up for the class of 2023. Each one of them is embarking on a journey that is unique, challenging, and filled with promise. To them, I say, you are more than a label. You are more than the color of your skin. You are the embodiment of the American dream. This dream is as varied, as complex, and as wonderfully unique as each one of you. Each one of you carries within you the power to affect change, the potential to shape the future, and the capacity to redefine the narrative. And that narrative should not be one that is confined by the color of your skin. It should be a narrative that is shaped by the breadth of your ideas, the depth of your insights, and the strength of your resolve. The world is waiting to hear your stories, so go out there, challenge the status quo, break the stereotypes, and rewrite the narrative. 
Show the world that you are more than just a label, that you are a force to be reckoned with. In doing so, remember that your journey is not defined by your race, but by the power of your intellect, the tenacity of your spirit, and the purity of your ambition. It is not your color that determines your value, but your values themselves, your commitment to excellence, and your willingness to stand for what is right. That was the op-ed piece by columnist Armstrong Williams titled, Let Us Not Forget It Is 2023, Not 1963. It was published May 23, 2023 in the New York Amsterdam News newspaper and its AmsterdamNews.com website. That's all the time we have this week. If you would like to listen to this program again or past editions of the African American Hour, you can find them wherever you get your podcasts or at the Audio Reader website at reader.ku.edu. I'm Byron Buckner, and thank you for listening to the African American Hour. Thank you.